You are listening to the Wesley Seminary Podcast out of Wesley Seminary at IWU. Your host today is Dr. Aaron Perry, Assistant Professor of Pastoral Care. What's the intersection of rhetoric and theology, or how we make arguments and present them, and what we believe about God, or what we believe to be true about uh, God's will and work in our world? If you are on Twitter or Facebook, or really just have had any kind of interesting conversation, you've engaged some of those questions. Uh, Joining us today is uh, A. Trevor Sutton. Trevor is teaching pastor at St. Luke Lutheran Church in Lansing, Michigan. He's also a graduate student in writing and rhetoric at Michigan State University. He's got an MDiv from Concordia Seminary in St. Louis, uh, Missouri. Uh, Welcome, Trevor. Thank you so much. It's wonderful to be with you. Now, I introduced talking about rhetoric and theology, and some of this will probably come up, but really what I had you on today was to talk to us about the trustworthiness of the Bible. Uh, About a year ago, you had a a book come out, uh, Why Should I Trust the Bible? Um, Addressing some of these these questions. And these are some questions that I come across from a number of people that I'm doing uh, ministry alongside, or I'm supporting, or I'm teaching in their in my in my own classes here at Wesley Seminary. Uh, so that's what I really wanted to talk to you about today. Um, here, here's the the question that sparked my desire to talk to you. Um, suppose a college student in your church, passionate about their faith, they're active in sharing their faith, and in one of those conversations of sharing their faith. They encounter another college-age student at their workplace. Not a run-of-the-mill college student, but these are two sharp uh, young people. Um, The Bible comes up in conversation, and suddenly the college student who's part of your church is challenged that the Bible, or at least the New Testament, is a book meant to oppress the weak and prop up the strong. Now, probably, uh, classically, you might hear of that as kind of a Marxist critique of, of Scripture, and people may or may not be able to articulate that, but they might have an idea that, you know what, the Bible, that's, that was just that was developed just for people to keep them in power and, and keep other people out of power. Uh, your college student who's passionate about their faith, active in sharing their faith, is kind of like, well, what do I do with that? What, what does that mean? Or, or how might I respond? They come to you, Trevor, how might, how might you respond to them? What, what resources might you give them with that uh, question in mind? Yeah, Aaron, this is a great question, and this is a question that, as you've predicted, uh, I've received on a number of different occasions uh, as a parish pastor. Uh, received this from my parishioners. Like you said, we're, we're in a college town. Uh, we're just in the shadows of Michigan State University. So a number of uh, people in my congregation uh, are college students, and they have this question presented to them. Uh, but I also engage this question personally as a, a grad student at Michigan State, uh, being on campus there, being a, a Christian, and uh, people approach you with this exact question. And I think what, what you're describing, what people say, oh, Scripture is uh, meant to oppress the weak, prop up the strong. Uh, it's just kind of a cliche depiction of Scripture that's really, it's unmerited, and it kind of, I find it frustrating because it really shows that whoever's making this argument or this claim really hasn't done his or her homework to actually see what scripture says. Uh, And like you said, particularly the New Testament, and it is, like you said, a Marxist critique, or uh, maybe somebody knows just enough Nietzsche to to say, oh, that would be in line with with Nietzsche's kind of um, the exertion of power and things like that. Uh, But it is frustrating because it it, it just shows you that someone's 
heard stuff about scripture, but they've really not opened up the Bible to figure out what does it actually say about the weak? What does it actually say about the strong? And I think my advice, my counsel to, to somebody that's received this question or uh, engaged in these kind of conversations, the, the, the place to start in my mind, the best place to start, uh, would be to, to talk about the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, in my mind, that is the, the climax, the center point of Scripture. Uh, I understand Scripture to be Christocentric, that Christ is at the center of it all. Uh, and the resurrection of Jesus is at the center of it all. And who do we see as the first eyewitness of the empty tomb, of the resurrected Jesus? Well, it's a woman. Uh, and that may not seem very striking to us in, in contemporary culture, but in the ancient world, that would be something unheard of. Uh, that in the ancient world, uh, women were uh, considered to be kind of on the fringes of society. Uh, women were not often allowed to uh, serve as witnesses in the courts. And uh, for, for Scripture to, at the climax and the epicenter of it all, uh, to place in the most important part of the, the whole Scriptures, uh, the resurrection of Jesus, that that Mary uh, gets to see Jesus first. Uh, that tells me something about how scripture relates to people on the fringes. Uh, and like I said, that may be kind of lost on our contemporary society, but as we look at it as a, an ancient document, we realize there's something really powerful going on here. Uh, another example, I was just teaching on this uh, Sunday in my congregation, but uh, Paul's epistle uh, to Philemon. Uh, kind of an obscure book in the New Testament. We often forget about it. It's, it's maybe one or two pages long in your Bible. Uh, but, but Philemon is this uh, gentleman who, uh, he has a servant who has run away. His servant's name is Onesimus. And uh, Paul says, uh, he, he comes to know Onesimus in prison. Onesimus becomes a Christian. Uh, and he, Paul then writes a letter to Philemon and says, receive uh, this runaway servant back, uh, not as a servant, but receive him back as a brother in Christ. So again, just two examples, but if you actually read scripture uh, and see it for what it is, uh, it's really hard to, to make that argument and to, to make it tenable that scripture is about oppressing the weak and propping up the strong, because there's just so many examples to the contrary. Yeah, so I hear you simply saying, put scripture to the test and, and engage the actual contents, right? See, see uh, does it do that, right? Um, does it want to keep people for Onesimus? Uh, does it want to keep them uh, enslaved or does it try to uh, set up a community where there's a new kind of uh, mutuality, a new, a new kind of um, friendship, really? Uh, a great book on, on, uh, that addresses part of Paul's letter to Philemon is from Sarah Rudin. And I think it's uh, her that she, the book's called Paul Among the People. Uh, and she says that uh, thinking about the rhetoric that Paul uses and this and this kind of um, under the under the surface creating of new category of brothers in Christ rather than owner and slave, um, Rudin says that the book of Philemon is probably the most fun that anybody could ever have writing a letter from prison. Uh, and I think uh, I think there's some truth to that. So I hear you say, you know, put scripture to the test. If, if you think that it's a book that's set up to to create dominance and uh, reestablish those in power and oppress those who are weak, then then test it. And you've given a couple of examples. Uh, and and thinking about rhetoric, just like you're describing here, I mean, the the wordplay that Paul uses uh, in this letter, you know, the name Onesimus uh, translated to it means something roughly as as useful. 
and Paul even plays on this saying that he's, he's this guy named, you know, that is useful. Uh, he's now useless to you because he's run away, but I'm sending him back and he's useful to you again. Uh, but again, not useful in the, the oppressive sense as servant or slave, but useful in a kingdom sense as, as brother in Christ. So yeah, no, it's, it's a brilliant uh, example of, of what we're talking about. So uh, let me let me push a little bit more down on the down this question because inevitably the apostle Paul comes up in these discussions, and and somebody might even look at the letter to Philemon and say, well, why doesn't Paul be against slavery? Why doesn't he just condemn the the setup, condemn the hierarchy? See, uh, Paul Paul's just playing into that. Paul's not really uh, he's not as much against it as he should be. Or perhaps maybe they would they would even take some of uh, Paul's text about not permitting uh, a woman to speak, right? First Timothy and uh, and uh, say, see, Paul is is he's not against those things at all. He's he's reinforcing hierarchies. He's he's reinforcing oppression. How might you how might you respond if somebody has uh, you know not just enough kind of Marxist categories to to say something, but they've heard enough of the Bible to to have a a quick response? How might you push that dialogue? That's a, a brilliant question and a question that I think will help people kind of uh, avoid some, some, some frustrating conversations if they've thought through this. And I think one of the best ways that I can describe that and think through that uh, is how God is incarnational, uh, that we see you know, in Jesus, in the incarnation, uh, that God has entered into uh, a time in human history. Uh, a time in human history that has a culture, that has a language, that has a history that has preceded it, a history that comes after it. Uh, and just think about Jesus. Uh, Jesus comes into a time and he speaks the language uh, of that culture. Uh, Jesus ate the food of that culture. And we can see this kind of the same incarnational theology uh, all throughout scripture. We can see it, you know, in the Old Testament with Israel, that Israel is always like their neighbors but Israel is always markedly different from their neighbors because they're God's chosen people uh, called to be different from their neighbors. And so I think as we just look at the broad scope of Scripture and, and, and ask the questions that you've asked, uh, we recognize that, that in Christ Jesus, we've been called to be different and a new people, uh, that the church stands out in that regard. But at the same time, the church is uh, in a culture, in a time, in a place, uh, in a society— and so there's always this balance of, of what does it look like to be that new creation living in the midst of, of, of an old, broken, sinful creation. And uh, that's certainly not a, an easy task, uh, but that is the task uh, that I see throughout Scripture and the task of, of what it means to be in Christ. So let me, let me use that to transition into a second, second question. Um, so let's say the person's tracking with you. They they see some evidence that scripture isn't oppressive. That maybe they're they're open to questioning that again. You know they haven't they haven't made up their mind on it anymore. Um, they accept that it's a it's a cultured text or it's a, it's a it's a text with context. It's not it's not simply dropped out of the sky. It's it emerges from the midst in the midst of questions and real situations and scenarios. Maybe the next question is well why should I follow its teaching today? Right, They're, they they admit, okay, it's not as bad as I thought it was. They say, okay, I get I get that you're saying I can understand it with a direction in mind. I have to understand it in its context, but but why should I follow it two thousand years later? Uh, I put I put the question like that because uh, one of the things that um, 
LifeWay research has found is that millennials aren't necessarily against authority, but they're against authoritarianism. Uh, so they might be willing to submit to scripture, um, but they certainly don't want to do it simply because the Bible says so, right? They need, they need more reasons. So um, why might you, how might you work at creating the possibility that the, the Bible remains authoritative? It still has something to do and say, it still has uh, a claim on us to shape and form us. How might you respond as this conversation keeps tracking? Yeah, and the, the book that you referenced earlier, Why Should I Trust the Bible? What I do in that book is is exactly this. Uh, and, and, and I take texts that I, I think our culture looks at and says, these are uh, authoritative texts in our culture. And I put those side by side against scripture and see how the two match up. Uh, so if there's a text that our culture says, yes, that is an authoritative text, uh, hold that against scripture and then compare the two. And so let me give you an example of what I mean by that. Uh, the Gettysburg Address, uh, that would be an authoritative uh, text in sort of the canon of American history. Uh, it's, you know, etched on the, the Lincoln Monument, and uh, it's something that, that, that people say, yes, that is a text that is recognizable and authoritative in our, our land. And as you look at this text and you hold it up against Scripture, you find out that actually Scripture wins the day. Uh, what I mean by this is, we don't often think about this, but there's actually multiple manuscripts of the Gettysburg Address. Uh, we have little historical certainty as to what Lincoln actually spoke uh, there at the Gettysburg Address. Because what happened was he had the, the text in front of him, uh, but then he handed out a number of different copies uh, that were, were gifted to people that were very close to him. Uh, the Associated Press uh, printed a, uh, a copy of the Gettysburg Address that was uh, transcribed as the, the, the address was being given. Uh, and then ultimately, there's the copy of the address that's that's etched uh, in the the Lincoln Memorial, and there's there's not complete agreement on those texts. Uh, there are what what we'd call manuscript variants, uh, and that's one of the claims that people often put against the Bible is they say, well, there's manuscript variants uh, that as we look at the ancient manuscripts, uh, there's not complete agreement that one text might uh, have this uh, rendering and another text might have a slightly different rendering. And the point is though. The Gettysburg Address is only 150 years old, and this text that we think is authoritative, uh, in fact, it has a great deal of, of questions and confusion as to what is exactly the right wording. Uh, we compare that to Scripture, a text that's significantly older than the Gettysburg Address, and you find out uh, the manuscript variants uh, are, are really nothing compared to uh, the, the far greater differences in, in, in a text that's not that old, the Gettysburg Address. So just to think about scripture and to compare it to authoritative texts and see how it, it, it holds up. And, and you find out that uh, it is in fact trustworthy and authoritative. Uh, so you're, you're pushing against maybe the challenge that um, uh, scripture is, is very old, it's unreliable. And you're saying, well, we have other documents that we think are reliable and we say are reliable. Um, and yet scripture, the Bible, uh, holds up holds up even stronger than, than some of these so it's a it's an argument simply from uh practicality right like we live we live our lives under certain documents that we say are authoritative yet yet the evidence would show aren't as reliable as what uh the new testament is am i hearing you right you are and it's, it's kind of a postmodern move to be honest because you're you're deconstructing what people hold to be authoritative texts uh and you're showing 
this text that you, you, you hold to be authoritative really isn't that authoritative. And this text that you've dismissed as not authoritative, uh, the Bible, is in fact more authoritative than you thought. Uh, and we can do this with other texts, uh, as I do in the book. I mean, for instance, encyclopedias. Uh, encyclopedia, if you look at one from 100 years old, I mean, you'll find it, it has some very bigoted and biased things in there. Uh, and it's only 100 years old, and it's completely uh, irrelevant and wrongheaded uh, in many regards. Uh, and compare that to the, the uh, eternal relevancy of, of Scripture and God's Word, and you find out something that, that's um, supposedly authoritative, an encyclopedia, uh, really doesn't hold up uh, for very long. So what would be the positive case that you would make for the authority of Scripture? I mean, a person could still say, okay, so there's, there's less variance, there's uh, seemingly more reliability, more evidence, um, less, less questioning, less room for questioning of Scripture than some of these other texts that we consider authoritative. So maybe I just want to be have no authority, right? None of it's reliable. What would be some of the positive way that you would build up that a person should say, uh, love their enemies and pray for those who persecute them, right? A, a person who's not a Christian could still look at that, understand what it meant, and say that's crazy, right? That that's ridiculous. Uh, I'm not I'm not doing that. Uh, what would be some of the positives that you would that you would point to with Scripture that um, that say no, it does have a moral claim, it does have moral authority for you? That's a good question. I think. What you're describing a little bit is kind of circling around maybe nihilism in a certain sense of, you know, maybe somebody just says, well, okay, these, these texts that you've claimed are authoritative are not authoritative, and, and maybe I can see that. But then they're also going to say, well, but I don't agree in the, the, the authority of Scripture either, so I don't agree in the authority of anything, uh, which I, I push back really uh, sharply against when people kind of make that argument, because I really think there, there's very few people who are truly, completely nihilistic in the sense of um, there are no truths whatsoever. Uh, there, there's nothing reliable out there. Uh, it's all just sort of uh, relativism, in my opinion, in your opinion. Uh, because at the end of the day, people really do uh, put their faith and trust uh, in something. And uh, so I think that's just a, a fundamental reality of life. And people can push against that, but uh, people put their faith and trust in their car and their car seat when they hop in their car. Uh, and they trust that it's going to be well-made and it's going to protect them and so forth. Uh, and we do this just with everything else, uh, with people of authority and uh, relationships and everything. But I think what you're asking too, though, is the authority of Scripture in a positive sense. What does that look like? Uh, and I guess one of the things that I would push people on uh, is, is to, to, to try it on and see, uh, which I might sound kind of weird, but in Scripture, I find a message that is fundamentally different than any other message that the world has to offer. Uh, and it's not a message of do these things and you'll be happy uh, or try this and, and, and your life will be infinitely better or something like that. But the message in scripture is completely unique in that the message in scripture is uh, there is a God who has made you and who has given it all to redeem you and to make you new in Jesus. Uh, and this is a, a grace-filled gift given to you. Uh, and I guess what I, the, the positive thing that I would say is, is uh, consider that and try that on and um, uh, put your mind around that for a little while and, and, and realize how, how that message is just starkly different from any other message that the world's going to try to offer. Uh, I appreciate that. I think, I think that's one of the things 
that we often neglect is that um, if I do believe Scripture is God's word to me, then there's not there's not a way that I need that I can keep it at arm's length, right? I can, I can keep it at arm's length to see is is there is it a re reliable text that I'm reading so that it wasn't drawn up 200 years ago or 50 years ago as opposed to 2,000 years ago mm -hmm. uh, and, and older, right? For for most of most of our scripture, um, but uh, there's a way that it has it has to be submitted to. It has to be uh, in that sense in that sense tested. Uh, there's there's no uh, to to see that it has a claim on me has to submit to its claims in the first in the first part. Not not to see does it work necessarily at producing a quote unquote better life, but to see um, what better life does it present to me and and. Um, do I find that that better life that it that it presents fits fits me, right? So I, I'm not able to put on scripture my um, my demands of saying, "Give me a better life." I'll follow you if you'll give me a better life. But it's submitting to it to say, "Okay, what do you say is the good life?" Or what does what does um, how does the God you describe say is the good life? What does the God you describe say is the good life? And and seeing that does that. Is that a good life? Is that the good life? Does, does there something that resonates with me uh, in that? And I, I think that whenever a person is open to that, then that's a very different conversation than a heady and intellectual one. Although that that's appropriate, right? A person a person might start there, or a person might have certain objections before they would uh, be open to to that kind of testing, that kind of trying it on. And another another way of saying it is is um we don't read scripture as much as scripture reads us, uh, which is kind of along the lines of what you're describing here in the sense of we, we can read scripture and, and have that, that uh, scholarly questioning and debating of it. But at the end of the day, uh, if it is God's word, then it's reading us and revealing uh, our, our sins and our brokenness, revealing our need for uh, a savior and salvation. And uh, so it is, uh, and it, it's it's a unique book in that regard that that you don't just read it but it reads you and reveals something of you. Uh, joining me today has been Trevor Sutton. Trevor is the author of Why Should I Trust the Bible, published by Concordia Publishing House in 2016. He's the uh, teaching pastor at uh, Lutheran Church in Michigan, a grad student at uh, Michigan State University in rhetoric and theology. Uh, Trevor, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, Aaron. It's been a great joy talking with you. And listeners, we hope that you'll take some more opportunity to connect with uh, Wesley Seminary by going to wesleyseminary.com, by following us on Twitter, by liking us on Facebook, uh, Wesley Seminary at Indiana Wesleyan University, and uh, always interested in interacting with you. So please feel free to uh, follow me on Twitter at Aaron H. M. Perry or sending me an email, Aaron.Perry at I-N-D-W-E-S indwes.edu. Uh, always interested in feedback and things that you'd like to hear on this podcast. Uh, check out Trevor. Check out the the uh, his book at Amazon.com. Why should I trust the Bible from Concordia Publishing House? And uh, see if some of his defenses there to why Scripture remains an authoritative text and how it stacks up against other texts that we consider authoritative, such as William Shakespeare, um, century-old or, or fairly recent encyclopedias. Uh, the Gettysburg Address. Check out, check out the book. It's a, it's a, it's a good resource, and uh, we look forward to hearing from you. Thanks so much. Have a great day.
Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter under the name Wesley Seminary.